it's gonna be it's gonna be really really neat. Yay. All right, we got we got a good number of people that are gonna be in that are in the uh, that I can see that have joined. Again, thank you very much. Um, I'm gonna do kind of qu a quick introduction, and then we're gonna I'm gonna hand it over to Hillary. Um, I do want to welcome everybody who's you know kind of here now, and that any, if you're watching this recording, thank you for taking the time to do that. Uh, for those who have joined from the How To ADU Facebook group, you know, and from our other social media platforms, we really appreciate you taking the time. We're going to try to answer as many questions that you might have on financing. Um, we will be following some of the basic kind of fundamental principles of How To ADU, which we're not going to be doing a lot of self-promotion about our companies, even though both of us are in the accessory dwelling unit space. Um, my name is David Donahue. I'm the host of Ask a Pro, and this is episode three with Hillary Seiler. She's with Umqua Bank, and she is a lending expert. Um, the one thing I know that I think I put in some of the other invitations is all of the awards that she's gotten, but she has <laughs> not put them on this slide. So thank you. you she, she's very highly uh, achieved. Is that a word? <laughs> sure. Um, so anyway. I will be putting Hillary's if uh, email address in here. It may be on one of the slides. If it's not, I'll make sure that I do put it into the to the chat. She, she, she'll have it there already. Um, best practices. So this is a webinar format on Zoom. Um, the On the bottom of the screen, there is going to be a Q&A. If you can put any sort of questions that you might want in there, it'll be easier for either myself or for Hillary to answer them. Feel free to you know participate in, in general kind of conversation in the chat if you like that as well. And... Uh, we will be live streaming this to uh, the How To Facebook page, and then we will make the recording available afterwards. And with that, um, welcome, Hillary. It's great to see you again. Thank you for having me, David. I'm looking forward to this. This will be fun. It's my pleasure. It, it is all yours. All right, let's do this. Uh, David asked me, reached out to me, and said, "You know, we're we're talking so much about the intricacies of ADUs, but a lot of people don't know the basics of lending, of financing, any type of real estate uh, purchase, whether that's buying a home that you intend to build an ADU on, or financing an ADU." And so we wanted to take it back to the basics and teach you how to finance a property 101. So that's what we're going to talk about today. And in doing so, let's see if my mouse will work. There it is. Um, we're going to have four main bullet points or pillars we're going to talk about when it comes to financing a property. And the first is actually qualifying for a mortgage loan. So that'll be our first pillar. Our second one will be the physical loan process, what you can actually expect to have happen when you're buying a home uh, or financing an ADU or building custom, tearing something down, renovating, you name it, this same process applies. Loan programs, what options do you have if you have a project in mind? And then last but not least, do's and don'ts of any type of lending process, because trust me, there's a few of them and these catch people. So I like to share them. Uh, without further ado, let's jump into number one. And if you all have questions, please drop it into the uh, Q&A box. And then also at the end of this, which will be 15, 20 minutes, I really want to get to your questions. Um, I will be doing a full scale opened up question and answer session. So just know that that's coming. All right, let's talk about the three legs to the lending stool. This is the fundamentals of getting a loan of any kind. It doesn't matter what you're trying to finance. You have to have three things in line. And those three legs to the lending stool are income, your credit score, a positive credit profile, and your down payment. So when I say three legs to the lending stool, 
If one of these legs is a little wobbly and your stool's not being held up, you're not gonna get a loan. So we have to have all of these three things in line in a good place in order for you to qualify for whatever you're trying to purchase. Income is probably the most pressing. It's the one that I tell everybody, if you can't get this right, right out of the gates, that's what we need to focus on. The Dodd-Frank Act has something called the ability to repay rule built inside of it. And Dodd-Frank came out in 2010. It's a government-backed uh, bill that's over 6,000 pages long or 5,000, somewhere in that marker. And it tells lending institutions how they can lend money. And one of the big pieces of that is income or your ability as a borrower to repay a loan. So income is absolutely key in how much of a loan we can give you based on what you can pay back. Number two leg of the stool is your credit score. It's gonna be different for everybody. Everyone's gonna be in a different position with their credit scores. If you're not in a good spot with your credit, there's a lot of things you can do quickly to elevate your credit score. And maybe David and I will do an entire section on credit. Um, I am a senior certified credit counselor. So if you do have a credit question, hang on to it and ask me because this, this is my wheelhouse. But with credit, when you're getting a loan, you really need to be over a 620. That's baseline. And then as you get into more complicated loans, construction, renovation, ADU building, those credit scores need to be just slightly higher. You have to prove as someone who's borrowing money that you can pay it back and that you're credit worthy. You're not going to lend your friend a hundred bucks if you know they never pay you back. Same concept goes for a bank, but we don't know you personally. So your credit score tells us how you operate. And that's the big piece here with credit. So having solid credit and a track record of good credit gets you better loan qualifications. And one of the things about credit, if I'm correct, Hillary, is that you said the minimum is 620, but if you're at the very low limits of the credit scores, you're, will you be paying more on your interest rates as opposed to if you were into the high mid 700s? Absolutely. Yep. So there are some programs that'll go as low as 580. Uh, some VA loans will do that. Some FHA loans will allow you to go that low. But the mortgage insurance premiums and the cost to get into those loans is pretty hefty. VA, not so much. It's its own thing. We can talk about that a little later. Um, but the better your credit score, the best case interest rates you're going to get and the lower your mortgage insurance if you're not putting 20% down. And this day and age, most people don't put 20% down. And that's fine. Um, as long as your credit score is super good, you actually might not pay much at all in mortgage insurance. So there are some hacks to get around that if you have good credit. Great point. Um, and I remember, gosh, a very, very long time ago, um, I was working on my establishing my credit and it takes some time. So, and I've gotten into the question, I've gotten the question several times from people that says, my credit's really low. How long does it take to kind of build it back up? And you could build your credit back up, but if you're just doing it by opening up a secured credit card, as opposed to financing and paying off a car, those are two very drastically different sort of credit worthy events or transactions. To an extent, yes. So a secured credit card is going to be the fastest way for anyone to build credit, but a secured credit card is only one trade line. What a lot of people don't realize about a mortgage loan is that mortgage lenders want to see at least three trade lines, which is three credit cards or two credit cards and a student loan or a student loan, an auto loan and a credit card. You're mixing those installment loans and those revolving credit lines. And the reason three is the magic number is it shows responsibility with money. The bank's going to give you $200,000 plus. They have to know that you're going to pay it back. And it doesn't always seem fair. People get 
kind of angry with me sometimes when I say, hey, I don't have enough credit history. It's not that you've done anything wrong. It's that we're not taught about credit and we don't know that we need three credit lines, three trade lines. So secured credit cards are great, but it's only one avenue. An auto loan is great, but it's only one avenue and you pay it off over time. So where a credit card is constantly revolving in its history that you can keep with you for 30 years, an installment loan or an auto loan might only be a three to five year period. So it's going to boost your credit score during that time. But once it's closed, it's closed. So having a mix of credit is absolutely imperative. In terms of uh, how long does it take to build credit, it's case by case. If you've had a bankruptcy or a foreclosure, it's going to take you a lot longer to come back from that than it would be a 20-year-old starting out building credit for the first time. You're, the 20-year-old's credit score is going to probably be feasible to use in one to two years versus someone coming out of foreclosure, you're looking at five to seven. So depending on how and where you are financially, this is a conversation you should be having with your loan officer. When they're doing these three legs to the lending stool with you, which they should be asking all three of these questions, this is how I start every one of my interviews with any client I work with. If they're not asking you about your credit report and your credit score, they're doing you a disservice. Because if we can get this right up front, it's gonna set you up for whatever goal you're going for. And people should, shouldn't be that worried about you know giving them somebody, because the only way you can pull a credit score, they can do it themselves, or if, if you're gonna do it, or a lender's gonna do it, you give the social security number. And I think that's important to mention that that's why you only should work with licensed people who have, you know, are, Kind of really highly scrutinized that they ha there are certain sort of rules and regulations of what you can do and how you handle very personal information yes everything is secured so uh mortgage lenders is you can see kind of on the bottom of my screen here where it says nmls number 401867 every mortgage lender a true mortgage lender um, whether it's a loan officer or a broker or someone like me who's a hybrid i broker loans and i originate them for a bank uh, we have to have an NMLS, National Mortgage Licensing System number. We get fingerprinted, we get background checked. You can pretty much pull up anything on us to make sure that we can't steal your information. That's how we keep it secure. Additionally, I cannot pull your credit until you fill out an application and actually give me consent to pull your report. And so that, again, also protects you. So when, I, when we're asking the questions, can you give me a ballpark credit score? How many trade lines do you have? Have you had a bankruptcy or foreclosure? Please don't be embarrassed to talk to your loan officer about it because we're going to be some of the only people that say, okay, cool, let's put a game plan into place no matter where you are and we'll get you where you want to go. But we need to know what's on the report so we can actually give you a timeline. And I think that you've mentioned something that I, I think that sometimes I've found in my transactions with lenders in the past is, is, is that they kind of rush through it. And I really like what you're talking about. Any lender is going to be talking about those three different aspects that you said, the three um, uh, legs, legs to the stool <laughs> legs of the stool and then kind of walking you through it so it is a perspective that you know the professionals are going to give you you know the professionals are going to say here's what we need to look at first and yes. then it's like okay you're either off to the races or there's no problem to say hey let's just start to work on some aspects of this massage it a little bit so we can make it you know work as easy as possible you're going to pay as low of an interest rate as possible and maybe have the lowest down payment yeah and I would say 90% of the people I talk to, when they call me, they're not ready to actually be starting an application to pull the trigger today. We're looking at three months, six months, 12 months down the line. 
based on their goals. Uh, what are they doing? How much money do they need saved? Do they need guidance in that department? And that's what your lender is for. That's why you build a relationship and you work with that person. And it's usually not just 30 days and done. You'll be talking to your lender for a while and going through a lot of different questions. And they're going to have a lot of questions for you. Um, as a lender, I can't assume anything about a person. I have to ask every question because if I assume incorrectly on a loan application and I put that information to an underwriter and they decline the file, you've lost out on a mortgage because I made an assumption. So you're going to see that mortgage lenders, although we ask you for a DNA sample of your firstborn child <laughs> on top of everything else, there's a rhyme and reason to it. Um, the last thing that we want to do as professionals is lose a loan for you because we assumed an extra dollar figure in a bank account or that you worked at a place for X number of years when really you didn't. Um, we've got to have all of that lined up. And that's where this upfront verification starts. And then once you get into the loan process, that's where all the paperwork comes in. And we'll talk about that next. But if you have any questions about credit scores, drop it in the Q&A. We've talked about that a little more. It's always everybody's favorite topic. Uh, and then the last but not least important uh, piece of the three leg to the lending stool is the down payment. And this is what kind of assets do you have to acquire the property that you want to buy, aka how much money do you want to throw at the house you're going to buy? And this is a question I get all the time. A lot of people assume that down payments have to be 20%. And in reality, you can put as low as 3% down on a purchase, first time home buyer purchase. There are zero down programs. They're very hard to qualify for, but they do exist. Um, if you are taking the time to get the right property, it's absolutely going to be 3% down minimum up to 5%, 10, 15, and 20. So there's going to be some tiers. Ashley, thanks for your question. Um, what was the minimum ballpark credit score again? The lowest you want to be when you apply for a mortgage loan is 620. You really want to be higher than that, though, for best case interest rates. Over a 700 should always be the goal. And if you're not sure how to get there, um, there's different credit courses you can take. There's different resources that David and I can share. I've got a few blogs that will point you in the right direction. It, it just takes time and consistency. All right, there's your three legs to the lending stool. That is how you qualify, start out to qualify for a mortgage. Once you've had this conversation, your loan officer should be taking you through the process of the loan itself, which is where you get pre-approved. So let's just go down the line. You meet with your loan officer. This one says Umpqua because this is our company branded stuff. You can ignore that. The same process applies for everybody. Meet with your loan officer and get pre-approved. A pre-approval simply tells you how much of a house you can afford based on your income, your credit, and your down payment. Now it's coming full circle. So you're getting pre-approved and someone is telling you, your lender, how much can you buy? You are going to give your lender all of the documentation to support your income and assets. They're going to give you a set of disclosures, which tell you what you qualify for. Um, and then you go find your home search or you start your home search. I'm sorry, you go find your home. This process can take anywhere from a day to two years. I have had people searching for homes for two years. Um, patience is good <laughs> in this market, but uh, I'm also a realist. If you're in a hurry, you may pay a little more for a house right now than you normally would. Um, but this is where you do your home search. And it's probably going to be the longest period of time during this entire process that you are going to have. Um, I'd say the average person, it's three to four months before they find the right house. And that's an average number. Some people find, find it on the first. Some people take a couple of years. Uh, so that's when this little arrow right here is pointing down. You're searching for a home. 
And this is where Hillary, the um, the borrower, your client, a client, is going to have that pre-approval letter that talks about their amount that the real estate agent that they're typically going to be working with is going to ask for. Yes, exactly. And so this is where once we've pre-approved you, let's um, use both scenarios. Let's say you're working with a realtor, you want to find a house. They're actually going to work directly with your lender to update your pre-approval letter to match your offer price. What I mean by that, that might sound really convoluted. Let's say you find a house that's $500,000 and you're pre-approved for $600,000. You don't want the seller to know that you have the capability to go to $600,000 because you've just taken all of your negotiating power right off the table. So your lender should actually be crafting additional pre-approval letters for you based on the offers you are making with your realtor. So there needs to be a conversation, a three-way conversation happening all the time between your realtor, your lender, and you, so that as you're writing offers, your pre-approval letter matches that offer that you're making on a home. Same goes when you're building a property or you're building an ADU, for example. I'm not gonna tell your builder that you qualify for 150,000 when you only qualify for 100. I'm gonna go to that builder and say, hey, your budget can't exceed X because this is what our client qualifies for. And then the builder can help you build to that price point, which is really imperative right now with how much um, things cost when you're building. Also, what kind of finishes do you want? A lot of what you can and cannot do hinges on this pre-approval. All right, so once you find a house, now we're in the middle here, uh, immediately your realtor is going to order an inspection on the property and the bank is going to order an appraisal. And here's the difference between the two. The appraisal tells you the value of the house. What's your house worth in real time right now? The inspection tells you how the bones of the house are surviving and holding up over time. They're looking at foundation. They're looking at mold on walls. They're looking on at electricity, plumbing, all of the things that make your house tick. They want to make sure it's working. A lender, myself, I never see the inspection report ever. That's between you and the seller to make sure that there's no major issues with the house. The lender only cares about the appraisal because the appraisal tells us if you're paying fair market value for a property. So we will order the appraisal while your inspection is happening. And as your appraisal is being ordered, a few things are happening on the back end that we will tell you about, which you probably won't see, which is taking your loan to an underwriter. An underwriter is basically the person that tears your loan file apart and finds any cracks or crevices that we haven't covered together. Meaning they're gonna triple check your income, triple check your bank statements. They're gonna make sure no money is coming in from sources that we didn't document. Uh, they're going to be doing all of the due diligence to make sure you're still employed. The underwriter's job is to make sure that myself as a loan officer doesn't miss anything and that we've covered all of our bases to meet government requirements to lend you money. So the underwriting process is usually two or three fold. We go through initial underwriting, which is where we submit the documents and they approve your file. Then before we can final approve your file, the appraisal has to come in. You have to set up homeowner's insurance with the person of your choosing. I will say this because a lot of people don't realize it. The bank does not choose your insurance agent, you do. So when you're selecting a homeowner's insurance policy, it's crucial that you get at least three quotes. Uh, I just had this happen to a client three months ago. They went to their current agent. Their agent gave them a quote for $2,900 a year on an insurance policy for a $400,000 home. Wow. And yeah, that was nuts. And I said, you might want to get a second quote. 
And she said, no, no, I know this is the lowest I can get. And it took me talking with her family to convince her that she needed a secondary quote. We went and got two more quotes. Both quotes were under $700 a year. So we saved her over $2,200 simply by having the conversation. Um, Not every loan officer is going to look at your insurance policy. They're really not. I mean, that's not what we do. We simply take what you've given us and it's our instructions to set up your loan. So someone like myself, who's a little bit anal and doesn't want their clients ever paying, I always look at the policies, but I've been doing this for 12 years. And if I see something a little out of whack, I'm going to say something. Um, As the homeowner, do your due diligence, get three quotes. One of the things, um, before we kind of go much further past underwriting, is I remember uh, advising people that if they're getting a loan and it's taking some time, it's really important that they really don't change their debt-to-income ratios. So, for example, you've looked at everything, you've qualified them, you've given them, you know, pre-approval ever. If they go out and buy some expensive item like a RV or a couch, couches, furniture is what gets a lot of people. So if you're you you're feeling a little good about yourself, you're getting you're excited, you have a pre-approval, and then you go start spending a lot of money. Am I correct? It can kind of throw your ratios out of whack. It can, yes. So when we go through the initial underwriting phase, which we're talking about here on this line, we are underwriting you to your current debt profile, meaning whatever's on your credit report at that point in time, that's what we're reviewing. If you go out and buy a five thousand dollar furniture set and your monthly minimum payment increases, it can actually take away your ability to qualify for a loan. And so in the do's and don'ts section, I'm gonna hit that a little harder, but you really don't wanna make any changes at all to your financial picture. No purchases out of the ordinary. You can buy your groceries, pay your bills, the normal stuff, because that's consistent with your credit report. But if you go and buy something completely out of the norm, and it's way more expensive than you're used to spending on a credit card, not only can it drop your credit score because you're spending outside of your regular means, which can impact your loan, it can also impact your ability to qualify from an income perspective. Because now you're carrying more debt, I have to be able to offset that debt with your income. So when you're in the process of the loan, um, you really shouldn't make any changes whatsoever. And I just saw a question come through, not sure if this has come up in conversation, but assuming things go smooth, how long does the process to secure financing take? Um, Great question. 30 to 35 days, typically, from start to finish. And what I mean by start, and thank you for the question, Roger. Um, What I mean by start on that is once you find a home, that's when the 30 to 35 day ticker starts. It's not here with the pre-approval. It's when you enter into contract with the seller of the house, we order the appraisal, and that's when the 30 to 35 day home loan process starts. Now, I'm going to preface this. Every lender is a little different. Some lenders can go a little faster. Some lenders are a little slower. Um, A standard, industry standard, is 30 to 35 days. So depending on your situation, if you have a really unique property, uh, I'll give you an example. I had a four acre parcel in the middle of Temecula, downtown Temecula that went up for sale that I was helping somebody with. And there's nothing like it around that house. It took us 45 days to close the transaction because I couldn't find an appraiser who was willing to take it on fast enough. The appraiser said, I need three weeks, not two to get this done because it's a unique property. So stuff like that will come up and it, your loan officer should be conversing with you about this, um, but the average is 30 to 35 days. All right, uh, once we go through the underwriting process, 
your appraisal has been ordered, your insurance agent is selected. The next step, which is these little arrows here, it doesn't have anything on it, is we take your appraisal, all the documents from you, any additional conditions we've collected for the underwriter and your insurance policy, and we send it back through for one final review. Once final review is done, then the docs will go to the title company. We call it docs to title. This is where we take your full loan package, we send it to our title company, and they put together all of the final fees. They're Switzerland. The title company handles the money. They have no vested interest in the transaction, so they're not going to be doing anything other than handling and shuttling the money between parties. Um, and they handle all of our documents. Let's see. Oh yeah, you bet, Roger. Um, so a title company is, think of them as Switzerland. They just move the money. And their job is to make sure that every piece of the transaction from the purchase agreement to your loan documents are accurate because we wanna make sure nobody's getting something that they didn't sign up for. Then the title company, once all of that is finalized, they will schedule you to sign your final loan documents. They will collect the money and they will fund. And fund is the magic four letter F word that we like in mortgage <laughs> uh, because fund means that you have actually taken possession of your property, of your new property, or your funding for your construction loan has kicked in. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the 30 to 35 uh, day loan process in a nutshell. It is a little bit more down and dirty than that when you're in it, and there's a lot to it, but this really is your 30,000 foot overview. You'll go through each of these steps. So I will uh, I will let you open it up to questions at, on this towards the end. I'm gonna go through the last few pieces here of our presentation today. Um, these are the loan programs. David had alluded to the fact that different loan programs have different mortgage insurance premiums and credit score impacts what you qualify for. This is where that comes into play. Conventional loans, which most of us know about, are the easiest to qualify for if you have at least 3% down and a good credit score. They're also the cheapest. We like that. So conventional loans are going to be your best bet if you fit within the mold of a conventional loan, which is a loan amount in um, most states. California has high income areas, which are a little different than this. Um, but in most states, the conventional loan limits are any loan amount up to $647,200. So if you are borrowing up to that amount, you'll be in a conventional loan. If you borrow over 647200 you're in what's called a jumbo loan. So these are the two main categories of available loans in the marketplace for a traditional home purchase, 3% plus down payment, and of course the qualifying um, credit score and uh, income we've talked about. Now I put FHA and VA on here. VA is a phenomenal program. If anybody is a veteran that's watching this or re-watching the recording, if you have access to a VA loan, absolutely use it. The interest rates are phenomenal. There's no mortgage insurance. Um, the costs are minimal. There's actually discount on title fees and origination fees. VA loans are solid. FHA loans are the other government-backed loan. And uh, FHA loans are for people with slightly lower credit with 3.5% down on a home purchase. Here's the catch. FHA loans, although fantastic for people with lower credit and it will get you into a home, you're going to have to pay a 1.75% buy-in fee on your loan amount, which means if you're borrowing, let's say $400,000, you're going to pay eight grand just to get into this loan. And then on top of that, your mortgage insurance is about three times higher than uh, a conventional loan. 
So it's a great option for people whose credit just isn't there um, or who has 3.5% down and not perfect stellar credit. So this is, I don't use this program often. I maybe do five or six of these a year just because it is so expensive. But if you're dying to get into a home and your credit's not great, this is a good option for you. And then last but not least is convention, uh, construction and renovation loans. If you're trying to build an ADU, if you want to renovate a garage, if you would want to add a kitchenette to your basement, um, if you want to build something from the ground up on a piece of dirt, those are construction and renovation loans. Those have higher credit requirements, 720 plus credit scores, um, and a little bit more money down required on those. You got to have more skin in the game if you're going to borrow money to build a house. Uh, the structure is not already existing. It can't be turned around and sold if you don't make your payments. So banks make you have a little more skin in the game. These four programs are overarching. There are first-time home buyer programs by county. So depending on where you live, your county may actually have a first-time home buyer program. Um, there are green renovation loans, which are super cool, where you can get solar panels and everything else put on your house for next to nothing. Um, but again, depends on where you live what county you're in uh, and how much equity stake you currently have in your home. And then last but not least, there are physician loans and what we call portfolio loans that allow people to buy really unique properties, maybe 60 acres of timbered land that you want to put a house on, things like that. So there are more than just these four, but these are the big primary four that everybody starts with. And then what your lender should be doing is filtering you into the right program based on the qualifications you talk about up front. Do you have any questions? Oh, go ahead, David. The little bit more exotic ones are like, because I know that we've talked about this in the past, is that you do have the ability, if, if for, as an example, somebody has a portfolio of properties, you know, and they wanted to, uh, they, they're all single family residents, you know, they're renting them out and they want to put, they want to put an ADU in the back or they want to, whether it's on the back as a detached or part of it as an attached ADU. Um, there are options that you can help people with that as well, too. Or there are Oh, options, absolutely. Yeah. So even though we're going with the basics, there are a lot of, you know, much more detailed, nuanced programs that are out there for people, depending on what your situation is. Uh, and that's what I think a lot of the folks that are out there making a lot of money, you know, kind of really moving and grooving is they're really leveraging what they have as their assets to try to kind of expand upon that. And again, I think mm -hmm. the key is, you know, whatever your mortgage is going to be, your rents are going to be above that. And you're using that to kind of, you know, add your wealth and kind of build things up. I think that the construction loans, are and the the HELOCs, you know, mm -hmm. HELOCs are a good one. Are, are putting you know something in the back, you know we're um, a lot of people are doing that when they're thinking about what they need for a parent or a child, um, and we're seeing a lot of people like okay, I, I David, I'm gonna need something to do, I need to pay for this, um, mm -hmm. I need to put my parent back there, and I need to do it pretty quick, and pretty quick in these transactions is, is you know under a year. Yeah, three to six months. I've seen people try to do it in three to six months. Yeah, you and to get every, you know, to get something built from scratch, you know, it's it's really hard to do. But um, thank you for that. I'll let you continue on. I think it's great. Like David's saying, there's there's so many little nuanced programs, little niche places you can take it. And the most important piece, if you leave with anything, is you should be having the upfront conversation about the lending stool. What are the three things you qualify for? And then what's your project goal? What are you trying to actually do? And as you're talking to your lender and we're uncovering what you're trying to accomplish, that should put us in a position to actually help you determine if there's a program or refer you to someone else. 
um, for those types of loans. So that's an option. And then Robbie had asked, uh, can construction loans be based on the final value of the property? Yes, they are. Absolutely. So a construction loan takes into account what the property will be worth when it's done. And the way that it's valued, the way that the loan process takes us into account is during the appraisal. So we are going to get from someone like David, a full set of plans, a full scope of work, materials breakdown and a cost estimate. So all the things that are going to tell me how much your project, whether it's an ADU or a renovation or an ADU renovation or a custom build from the ground up, what are you building? Those specs and those plans are going to tell me exactly what that is because it tells me materials, square footage, where the house is going, everything. I take that to an appraiser and the appraiser looks at it and gives me a final value. They actually say, yes, based on what this person is building in this area on this lot, here's what the value is in real time today. And as a lender, we take that and lend on it. So great question. Uh, and to kind of follow up on what that, uh, the good question that Rob asked is in Burbank, where I'm at, ADUs are not typically appraising for what the value, what, for what they cost. You know, mm -hmm. ours is going to be, when we're all said and done, it's going to be 250,000 to 275,000 for a one bedroom, one bath at 734 square feet. Just kind of, Final price is going to be dependent on what kind of cabinets and countertops my wife wants. <laughs> the but then if you look at an appraisal, it's not may not necessarily appraise. And so in that event, is it true that they're moving in to see how much equity is in the primary house? Correct. Yep. If you're looking at a construction loan, it's not taking into account just the ADU or just the main home. When you're building an ADU on your property, the ADU is considered part of the main home one tax lot not that they are they do have separate values because a detached square footage has different value than a main home square footage but think about your piece of land we're not splitting your land your land is still what it is we are looking at the value of the entire project and that's what we base it on so you could have eight hundred thousand dollars of equity in your primary home and we're leveraging that to help you build your adu you might also not appraise for where you want to be. That happens with ADUs. I've had it happen before. And at that point, we look at how much equity do you have? If at least 10% equity, we can usually make something work on the finished value. If not, sometimes we have to go back to the drawing board or we push the project off a year and let the client save up more money. Um, or another option, I've had people uh, sell additional properties that they've had. I mean, there's a million ways we could go with it. I won't give you every scenario. Um, but those are conversations we should be having. And if your loan officer is not talking to you, whether that's email or phone, because I have a lot of clients who don't ever want to talk to me on the phone. They'd rather just email me their questions and get bullet points back. Totally fine. They want a paper trail. I'm cool with that. Uh, you need to pick your poison and how you want to be communicated with so that the lender knows exactly what you need. And don't be afraid to reach out to them. I have so many people say, I'm sorry for bothering you. You're not. This is my job. <laughs> Please bother me. I need to know what's happening. Um, so these types of things are going to be hiccups in the ADU process or construction loan process, but it's not something that can't be overcome. All right. Last but not least, the do's and don'ts. This is our last side slide before Q&As. Um, I know this is a lot of info, so I'm just going to break it down, the do's and then the don'ts. And if you have questions, let me know. Job changes. So for the do's, 
please let your loan officer know if you change jobs, because if you change jobs and they've qualified you on a certain income level and that income level changes, so does your pre-qualification. So do talk to your loan officer about any type of income change. If you get a rental property, for example, that is an income change. If you buy a property and don't tell your loan officer that you're in contract for a rental or you've recently started receiving rental income, that is a change. So please make sure you're having those open dialogues. Do number two, uh, protect your credit score. When I say that, I mean, make sure that you either freeze your credit report or have a monitoring service, and then educate yourself on what might impact your credit score during the loan process. David alluded to it earlier, don't take out extra loans, don't buy things out of the ordinary. It can absolutely ruin your ability to qualify for a loan. I have had people lose their loan at the closing table. In 12 years of doing this, I think I've had four clients who we could not close a loan for. One gentleman lost his job two days before closing, couldn't do anything about that. He no longer had income. I had another gentleman buy a big F-150 truck four days before closing. We did the final credit check. Sure enough, he had an $85,000 loan on his credit report and disqualified him for his mortgage. So this does, it happens. It really, it's four times to me, um, which still breaks my heart to this day, um, but it happens. So ask the question before you spend the money, just because you do not want to lose out on the house because you have the urge to buy a boat. That was another one. <laughs> um, and then keep all of your bank records. The Patriot Act requires us as lenders to track every penny of your money in your bank accounts. We have to make sure that there's no fraudulent money coming in and out. 99% of us would never even think to provide fraudulent bank statements, but I've had that happen too. And our job is to make sure that all of the money coming into and out of your bank accounts is tracked because we have to prove to the federal government that there's no fraud. And that's part of the do. Do keep your bank records, do provide all your transaction histories because we're gonna ask for them. And then ask questions along the way. I, you're probably sick of me saying that. I can't tell you how many times questions have saved transactions. No matter what you're buying, ask questions if you're unsure, because we only do this a few times in our lives, most of us, and we don't know what we don't know. So if you're unsure, ask the question. The don'ts, don't make any large purchases, appliances, jewelry, cars, et cetera. Um, we've pretty much hammered that one home. Don't co-sign for anyone else's loan. Uh, you may think, oh, I'm co-signing, I'm not responsible. If you co-sign for someone else's loan, you're responsible for that debt, which means I have to qualify it on your loan. So your income has to qualify your debt, plus your family member's debt and any credit cards you have. Um, so mortgage, co-sign loans, and then your actual credit profile. Don't co-sign while you're in the process of applying. And Hillary, that's one of the things where I've, I, in, in, in the 20 years that I've been doing this, have seen some of the most kind of heartbreaking things is where a parent co-signed for a, a yep. child and, and you know, they, it's just kind of pulled their credit down so much and that it, you just have, it, it breaks your heart to say you shouldn't do it for a child. I mean, if they can't do it on their own, you really got to ask yourself, you know, what are the ramifications for you? And for the years that you could be affected by it. Right, because if you're co-signing for a 30-year mortgage, technically speaking, you're not a co-signer, you're a co-applicant because mortgage loans don't recognize co-signers, they recognize co-applicants. Um, I've had a few parents co-sign or co-apply with, with uh, their children over the course of my 12 years of doing this. And I always ask them the question, are you going to be making any purchases in the next 10 years? you're going to need this money for because this mortgage loan is going to impact your income 
And nine times out of 10, the parents are aware of it. They understand what's happening. Kids are going to refi them off once they get to a point where they can. I totally get that. But just understanding that if you co-sign for anything at any time, that is you are assuming someone else's debt. And if they don't pay it, the creditors are going to come to you for it. So it's just making sure that you're not putting yourself in a bad situation, especially while you're trying to purchase a house or build a home. Uh, don't get any new loans or consolidate credit cards. A lot of people are like, why not consolidate credit cards? I'm lowering my monthly payment. When you have a credit consolidation company pull your credit, that actually impacts your score. Also, it changes your debt profile when they start paying a bunch of things off and putting it into a new loan. So if you're trying to consolidate anything, do it before you apply for your mortgage. Let your credit report sit for 60 to 90 days and then come back to your lender because you want to get all the consolidations done, everything paid off and allow your credit score to slowly rebound before you have someone else pull it. And then last but not least, do not change jobs. Now, if you are going to change jobs and people do this, I have it happen about five times a year, um, you get a job offer you can't pass up. As long as I have an offer letter from the person that you will be working for and your termination date is within two weeks of taking on that new job, you're fine because that shows consistency. But if you take three months off of work just for no reason, that can actually impact your ability to qualify for a loan because we have to prove why you weren't working. Now, acceptable reasons not to work, injured workman's comp. If you had a child and you're stay at home with your child, it doesn't matter if your mom or dad, if you are staying home raising a child, that is a valid reason not to be at work. Um, if you have a disabled parent, that is a reason to be at home, not at work. Now, when you apply for a loan after or during that process, whoever you're applying with has to qualify for the loan. But if you have gone back to work after an extended leave of absence, you have to have six months of income with your current W-2 employer. If you are self-employed, you must have two years of income on tax returns before a lender can use it. So income, that was my first bullet point. That was there for a reason. Income drives everything that we do. So if you have a question about your income, that should be the first thing you're talking to your loan officer about when qualifying for a property. So that is my summation. That's it. That's where we're at. Um, now we are ready for the Q&A. Uh, and I will just go to the next screen so you guys have my contact information in case you'd like to reach out. Um, uh, this would be good for people to kind of do a screenshot of it. So if you want to save it, that'd be great. Also too, you know, depending on how you came to this uh, webinar, you can always kind of reach out to me and I'll be very happy to provide it as well too. So, um, I, ha I do have some questions, um, sure. things that have kind of come up after during things that you and I have talked about with, with episode number one, and then things that kind of come up that I think might be a little bit more all encompassing. Mm -hmm. So, um, one of those is this is typically for conventionally traditionally built let's say it's an adu you're going to be mm -hmm. building an adu and you want to get a construction loan or you want to get a heloc and you can do the the renos correct oh yeah so those those three are going to be for ubc uniform building code california building code title 24 compliant stick built traditional adus the construction loan the renos but not the HELOC. If you went to a HELOC and you're doing a home equity line of credit, just pulling cash out, you could go get something that's not, you know, stick built. Yeah, you can get anything you want and put it on the property. Whether you can sell it or not is a different story. But 
that takes me into the next part, which I think is kind of financing because people, you know, as you know, for those of you who are here and that you may be watching this, there are a lot of companies that are out there offering a lot of different products. And I really like to ask, tell people, and I advocate, and it, I get really kind of nerdy into this, and I call it Title 24, which is the, actually it's the energy compliant part of the state of California building codes. But mm -hmm. it kind of categorizes, you know, stick built. And it also complies with local jurisdiction. So I call it Title 24. That's a traditionally built ADU. Right. That's one. We're talking about that. The other one is Title 25. It's a HUD. HUD is the um, federal department for a national HCD is the state level, and so they administer the manufactured homes. Yep. People are calling them prefabs, modulars, factory builds, but anything that's going to, if it's Title 25, again, that's the easiest, simplest way, the most obscure way is asking if it's Title 25, but you'll know, and there's a lot of big marketing, big companies that are spending big dollars to market, so when you type in ADU, they're going to come up high on your Google search. So when you're looking at them, just ask them how to what construction they're going to be built to, because it may preclude you from working with somebody like Hillary. You, you, I can do prefabs usually as long as it's a stick built in a factory. But and, the second you get to manufactured, it changes things. That's and that's why I want to bring this up, because it's really, really critical. The other thing is the third product that I'm seeing a lot of are these pods or box of boxable or steel containers, things, or it's something that has wheels on it and you say you can just plug it in and you don't need permits. That is a cool product. It's very sexy. They're very inexpensive, and but they're built to the RV codes. Now mm -hmm. the RV codes, the only way you're going to be able to finance that is going to be with the HELOC or you're going to apply it to, to that company that's selling it, maybe have their own sort of financing program. But the one thing that kind of brings us all, circles it together, is that if you have something, if you put an RV coded, or maybe you have a Title 25 and has not been recorded, you know, with a permanent foundation system, so it's not part of the property, you might run into some issues if you're going to sell in the future or refinance, and you want to get some money out of it or you want to sell it, and you have some construction that is called mixed construction, or you have something that's a, an RV which is called chattel, personal property. Hillary may have the appraiser come back and say, hey, there's some chattel on there. And if you want to be able to sell it to this client for a bajillion dollars, you have to remove it. Yep. So there are these happens all the time. And and I and I, that, that's why I really kind of got you know excited about doing Ask a Pro and having somebody like Hillary here, because uh, there are so many different things that you may not know of because there's so, the, the I call the ADU uh, marketplace, you know, that's out there for consumers which is so wonderful about how to ADU and that, that Facebook group, because we can kind of kind of sift through it. There's people providing and trying to sell you things that may, that really have some long-term consequences that they're not going to tell you about. Mm -hmm. But we really want to be able to kind of engage, um, ask us, we want to try and be as, as upfront as we can. Jose had a question. It's like, if you can yeah, I saw it here. Someone, and how long do you have to wait to remove yourself from the loan? And it depends on, great question, Jose. It depends on the type of loan and it depends on why you co-sign for them. Um, typically speaking, if you're co-signing for somebody's loan, it's because they can't qualify on their own. Now that could be an income reason or it could be a credit reason uh, in most cases. If you're just giving somebody money for a down payment, you can just get them and you don't need to co-sign. 
Um, but if you're co-signing, you're most likely co-signing for one of those two reasons. If it's a credit reason, um, on a mortgage loan, it doesn't matter. We go with worst case credit score. So most people aren't going to use credit as a thing um, because we're going to give you the worst case interest rate off the worst case credit score for all the applicants across the board. But in most cases, that type of situation lands on cars. If you're co-signing for someone on a car, they go with the best credit score on the application. It can take anywhere from six months to three years for the other person on the application to build their credit score high enough to refinance you off. Now they can refinance you off in six months. Maybe their credit's not great, but you just need to get refinanced off, go for it. In terms of a mortgage loan, Typically speaking, especially with interest rates going up, people aren't going to want to refinance because A, it costs four to $5,000 to refinance a mortgage loan and get another applicant off of the loan. And they're subject to whatever the interest rates are in the current market. So if you are co-signing or someone is co-signing with you for a mortgage as a co-applicant, it will depend on your situation and when you are trying to qualify on your own as to whether or not you should have a co-signer. If they're helping you with income, it will just depend on how long it takes you to qualify for your mortgage on your own as to when they come off the loan. So co-applicants or co-signing, which we'll use interchangeably here, depends on the situation. What are you co-signing for? And how long is it going to take the person who you are co-signing for to either earn enough income or get a good enough credit score to get you off the loan? In most cases, I don't see people coming off loans. Right. Uh, I have only probably refied three of my co-signed loans recently. Um, a few people have sold houses and their parents helped them buy another one. I see that pretty often. Again, nothing wrong with it. If the income is there to support multiple mortgages or multiple cars, you're in great shape. Otherwise, don't put yourself in a bad situation because I, there's I, no guarantee you're getting off that loan. No, if they can't I, qualify I, without you, you're not getting removed. No, and I, I agree. I can 100% don't co-sign. Um, it really kind of binds you. For years, I see it where they you co-sign for a car. You know, you want to help your kid out. They want their they they've graduated. They're on to their job. They can't, they haven't established enough credit to be able to do it. You know, I would say if anything, buy the car for them yourself. You know, have them pay. You know, whatever the the loan is, and have you know the insurance is their obligation. But don't co-sign because it has such huge ramifications. You know, years down the line. Um, so I definitely would uh, caution about that. Yeah, just, you know, have the, have the conversation. For some people, it's a great fit. But for the majority of people that I talk to, they opt not to do it. Um, the next question, is there any programs like Cal FHA or something similar for assistance of funding for a stick-built ADU in California? Well, not that I know of right now. David, are there any private funding? Um, so let me, I'll preface this. No government-backed programs, conventional loans, jumbo loans, construction loans, renovation, none of that is offering any kind of incentive right now to help you build an ADU. You'd have to go to private money to help you get grants and or some sort of assistance. Um, with the cost of building being so high and the real estate market being through the roof, government doesn't have to offer assistance at the moment. So private sector companies are stepping in to do that. David, do you have anybody that you know what that's offering that? Well, one of the, it, it, this is a question that's come up um, several times on the How to ADU Facebook page, that there were some monies that were being offered through some programs. Mm -hmm. There were a few lenders that uh, were providing them. Yes. But it was very limited money, it was, and you ha it had to be a construction loan, and there was a lot of sort of hoops that you had to jump through. So it, And, a, and I think as they first launched it, um, 
there was another company that was in it, but then they pulled right back out of it because mm-hmm. it was just, it was like maybe $50,000 grant, but then not very much the money. sort of com- things that you had to do to be eligible for it. You had, you had to do a construction loan and then you mm-hmm. had to refinance your, your entire project. So it, okay. in, my, in my opinion, it was very cumbersome. Yeah. It really kind of, it was an overreach uh, and they didn't. Uh, it sounds like a bond program, like a state sponsored bond program. There's a lot of those out there. They're yeah. not ADU specific though. Um, those are single family home, first time home buyer specific programs. There's a lot of those. Um, every county has different ones, but ADU specific ones, not that I know of, you might be able to find a lender, like David said, who's got some sort of access to grant money, uh, but then you're going to have to qualify for that grant money. And that can be as it comes available because there are releases of grants throughout the year. Um, but again, you'd have to do a little hunting on that. I, at, at the current moment, Umqua is not doing anything um, in terms of grants for ADUs that we have access to. I have a question that just popped into my head. Mm-hmm. Borrowing money from your 401k. Oh yeah, that's common, very common. Um, people do it all the time. Uh, now you have to be currently working with the company that you are borrowing money from. So I'm going to use Nike as an example, because I have a lot of customers. I live in Portland, Oregon, a lot of customers that are Nike and Intel employees and their 401k plans are fabulous. Um, a Nike employee can borrow up to a certain percentage of their 401k balance at a low interest rate, they're borrowing against their own money and use that money as either a down payment or if they have enough money to fund their ADU. Once the ADU is done, they can take out a home equity line, do a cash out refinance, so on and so forth to pay back their 401k or they simply pay it back over time. Um, Depends on what the terms of your 401k plan are and every term is different. So if you do have a, a healthy 401k balance and it's easy access to money for you, you need to go to the 401k plan terms with your HR team at whatever company you work for, and they will tell you what you can borrow, what that balance would be, and what the interest rate is, and they'll even give you a term sheet. They'll tell you how much your monthly payment is going to be, how much it's going to pull from your paycheck to pay that loan back. They'll give you all of the terms. Um, I've never seen one company do it the same as the other. So uh, it's a to- it's absolutely an option. You're borrowing against your own money, which is great. Um, there's no penalty for borrowing against your 401k. Just make sure that you're not leaving your company in six to 12 months because then that balance comes due. So just understand your terms. But if you have a great 401k with a company like Nike or Intel, you're, you're probably not going to be leaving anyway. But I don't see that really brought up as an option. And so I wanted to kind of bring it up before, yeah. before we kind of concluded here at four o'clock. The last, uh, not the last thing, I'm, I'm, oh, I had a question for you and I just totally forgot it. Um, mm, oh, I, I remembered it. If you were, uh, I have your, I ran out of money. Mm, I need to a loan. I didn't, my, my project's 250 and all I have is 200. Hillary, can you help me? You've already started building? No. I've already started. Contractors are already broken ground. I, I have the, everything's done except for the interior finishes. You are not going to find a lender in the greater United States who's going to willingly take on that project. <laughs> um, some lenders will make an exception as a construction loan to come in halfway through a project. Uh, I I will put an exception in for you. The last 15 exceptions I've requested on situations just like this one, David, have been declined. 
um, because it's very rare that a lender wants to come in halfway through a build and protect the asset, make sure no builder liens go on it. We don't know what's been happening on this project. We haven't been there for disbursements. We don't know who's been paid. We don't know where the money's gone, which means technically speaking, any subcontractors that have worked on that property can lean the house. The builder, the GC can lean the house if the clients haven't paid them. Um, there's a lot of risk affiliated with breaking ground when your loan is not in place. So if you're thinking about doing an ADU or building a house or renovating or any of it, get your financing done first. It puts you and your builder in a better position. I've had to send a lot of clients to hard money lenders to get their projects done, or they take out credit cards at 19% interest and just try to get it done as fast as they can. It's just not worth the risk. Save yourself the headache. Take the extra two months to get your financing lined up correctly. You might find a conventional lender who will help you given your very specific situation, but why run yourself through the stress of that and build up credit debt for no reason? Um, I know everyone's in a rush, but take the two months to get it right with your builder and get your financing in order before you you know don't don't try to skimp it you know and then Mm -hmm. give you if you i don't it's just me give yourself a little bit of a a buffer of some time because we are seeing we are in very interesting (laughs) with inflation uh with jobs taking longer because they're built because they just don't have the employees or they get sick um there's so many factors that you really want to kind of look at this as i say very conservatively so just don't try to skimp on it. Um, we are at four o'clock. Hillary, wonderful presentation. Um, everybody who's still here, thank you very much for hanging in uh, for this one hour as we really covered a lot of information, even though it's the basics. We, it, it's very, uh, there's a lot of density to it. There's a lot yeah. of things, a lot of nuances. Um, lenders like Hillary, you know, are gonna be able to kind of take you through it. And I think they're gonna really uh, be worth everything um so find somebody you feel comfortable with yes um, with that hillary um let's do it again sometime in the future i think you're this is always exciting to have you on ask a pro and with that we're going to be out so everybody have a great rest of your day thank y'all okay take care bye-bye